I once read a story of a young woman who wanted to go to college, but her heart sank when she read the question on the application that asked, are you a leader? Being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, no. Then she returned the application expecting the worst. To her surprise, she received this letter from the college. Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. <laughs> I thought that was great. And it so beautifully goes along with what we're talking about tonight. God has designed men and women differently. He has also given them different duties and functions within marriage. You cannot have a leader without a follower. And though human nature tends to value the position of leadership above that of a follower, both are essential. And I would say particularly our world is always promoting being the one in charge, being the one with power, being the one that's the leader. And yet that's not what God has designed. So if we think about that on a practical level, consider it like this. If a king had no subjects, who would he rule? If a boss had no employees, who would he manage? If a teacher had no students, who would he instruct? If a pastor had no congregants, who would he shepherd? Obviously, you get the idea. Both are important, leader and follower. So perhaps you have heard this before. The razor blade is sharp, but it can't cut down a tree. And the ax is strong, but it can't cut hair. And yet you need the razor blade and you need the ax. Both things are necessary. The same is true within our marriages is how God designed us as husband and wife. God has carefully and intentionally designed husbands and wives with differing roles in marriage so that they can complement one another, not compete with one another. And this is where we get ourselves in trouble because the world and the culture in which we live makes us believe that we should be competing with our husbands. And we wonder why marriages aren't very successful in the world. Because when you have two people that are always knocking heads, that are always competing with one another, of course that's a recipe for disaster. So as a bit of a review from last week, not much, but I wanted to read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And actually, if you guys don't mind to open up your Bibles, we're going to read from Genesis 1, and then we're going to go to Genesis 2. And I realize that in our circles here, most of you are probably fairly familiar with the things we're talking about tonight. And so I truly desire to just stir you up by way of reminder Remember what your role is. And sometimes in the day-to-day busyness, scheduling, duties that you have to accomplish, we can forget to live out our role diligently and with excellence and with joy. So that's what I'm hoping to perhaps communicate a little bit tonight. So notice that both men and women were created in God's image, but notice 
how the passage continues after that. So starting in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So both husband and wife were created in God's image. And we talked about that last time we met. And both, as we just saw, were commanded to rule together over the creation that God had given them. So John MacArthur, John MacArthur wrote this, The man and woman were co-regents. God gave both Adam and Eve the task to rule together over the lower creation. So they were to do this, but they were to do it in a way that they weren't knocking heads, that they weren't competing with one another as they both worked together to rule over creation. And the only way that that could be successful is if they complemented one another in their roles. So if we keep reading over in Genesis 2, so flip your page to Genesis 2, we'll start in verse 15 and we'll read through 25. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So I've made a very brief summary on your outline at the top there and I'm just gonna go ahead and go through those. But I just wanted to do this specifically so that it makes us think through, what did we just read? What are the important things that we can take out of that passage? So number one, Adam was created first. And number two, Adam was given a home, the Garden of Eden. Adam was given an occupation. He was told to cultivate and keep the garden. Number four, Adam was given clear directions about how to properly live in the garden. Number five, Adam was given a clear warning not to disobey. 
Number six, Adam was warned of the consequence of disobedience. Number seven, God brought all the animals to Adam and instructed him to name them. Number eight, Eve was created for Adam. Number nine, together they became a new family unit. And number 10, there was no shame in nakedness and intimacy. So that's kind of a brief synopsis of what we just read. And now you can take that home and look over that really quickly. But the things that we have there are very important as we consider the roles that God has given for husband and wife. And we are not actually going to go into the role for men. We are only focusing on the role of women. That way you can focus on yourself and not go home and think about how your husband is failing. <laughs> Did you notice that there was no mention of Eve until verse 22? It wasn't until after Adam named the animals that he recognized his need for a helper. There was no one, nothing suitable to help him with the duties that God had given him. Because remember, God, God gave him this responsibility and Adam was solely responsible for those things by himself. And he had no, there was no Eve yet. God let Adam recognize his need and then he created Eve out of Adam's sign. So I just thought this was kind of a neat additional little side thought here. But Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And I thought, you know, that's kind of sweet when you realize that Adam had a need. And what was his need? He was all alone. He didn't have anyone to help him. He had no companionship. And God supplied exactly what he needed. Adam had a need and God supplied that need. The following verse tells us about the reason women were created. So in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, it says this, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And right there, that's where we have issues, right? Because we don't want to, well, in our sinful flesh and the world's idea, they do not want to believe that they were created for the sake of the man. And yet this is actually a wonderful and beautiful thing that God has created for us to be able to do. And so we have to see it and understand it from scripture and appreciate it. This is not a negative thing. It's not a lesser or lower thing. It's actually a very, very helpful and necessary role that God has given us. Adam was specifically designed to help and be a companion. That doesn't make sense. However, God waited until Adam also recognized his need. Then God supplied a companion in the form of a helper. Genesis 2.18 continues, I will make him a helper suitable for him. God could have provided an ugly, ignorant creature to be Adam's helper. And we are so glad that we are not the ugly, ignorant creature, right? 
God instead gave Adam a helper that appealed to him in every way, one who could engage with him on every level. She could share his thoughts, worship his God, work alongside him, delight him sexually, and bear his children. Woman was a perfect fit for man. And the thing that's so sweet is that woman, women are created beautiful so that men appreciate looking at their wives, which is very sweet as well, which is one reason why we should take care of ourselves because our husbands like to look at us. Side note. So finally getting, I guess, I guess you've kind of already been on your outline, but now the real outline. So Roman numeral one, God's design for husbands and wives. So under that, capital A, God created a wife as a helper to her husband. So basically what we have here is we have the role of a wife. And I would say that that is her role is to be a helper. And then the things that we're going to look at tonight are things that would fall under that category of helper. So, because as I was thinking about it, I was like, wait a minute, is helper like its own category? And I would say, no, overall, helper kind of sums up all the things that she's doing as she comes alongside her husband. So Alexander Strzok wrote this, God fashioned a partner for Adam out of his rib. This demonstrates their equality in nature. The man immediately recognized that the woman shared his same nature. So he said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She was not an inferior creature like the animals he had been busy naming. She was taken out of his side and thus shared equally in his nature and in the bearing of the image of God. So B, husbands and wives are equal in nature. And I realize we mentioned some of this when we met last time, but I think it's good to just put it in here with the roles as well. The woman was not created to be in competition with the man, nor was she created to perform the same tasks as a man. If that were so, she would simply be a female duplication of the man. We don't need that. We need two people different that can work together well. She was created equal, yet distinctly different in her function, role, and responsibilities. God is a God of order. He masterfully created men and women to live together in an orderly manner by constructing a chain of authority through the specific functions of husbands and wives within the family. As we consider these differing duties, we must keep in mind that both are indispensable. And one thing that I was reading that I didn't add here, and I might tag this on someplace else, but it was actually um, from this book right here, Equal Yet Different. So these are a couple of the books that I was reading this week. So this is the Alexander Strzok book, Equal Yet Different, and then John MacArthur, Divine Design. And really, as they're talking about the roles here, they're talking about them really more in the context of the church. But one thing that Alexander Strzok said that I thought was really interesting is he said, the home, the family unit is the first place where this 
where these roles are lived out. And then when we go into community within the church, when we're already living these things out well in our homes, we're naturally going to live out that role as well in the church as women submitting to um, the men as they lead the church and to not teach and things like that. So anyways, I just thought that that was kind of neat. It begins in the home as we saw from Genesis. So anyways, continuing on here, Matthew Henry wrote this, the woman was made for the man to be his helpmeet and not the man for the woman. She was naturally therefore made subject to him because she was made for him, for his use and help and comfort. And I don't, okay, just by personality, maybe I shouldn't share these kinds of things, but by personality, I'm like, you're going to give me a job? Well, doggone it, I'm going to do it well then. So you tell me that these are my responsibilities. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to let him regret the fact that he married me, which, you know, sin gets into all that and everything too. So anyways, but I appreciate that, that uh, we were made for him, for his use, for his, to be a helper to him. And to comfort him. Have you guys walked through difficult things with your husbands? Difficult trials. We are the ones that come alongside our husbands when they face difficult things and we encourage them and we support them. What about when they sin? And their sin affects us. Are we willing to comfort them in that? by forgiving them and not holding their sin against them. This idea of comfort is a big deal because there's nobody else that's going to come alongside our husbands in the same way that we will to comfort them when they walk through difficult things, to comfort them when they fail miserably, to comfort them when they struggle and wrestle and fall into sin. But we have the precious privilege of being able to be that for them. Although the woman was created for the man, it is important to note that she was not created to be a slave or the object of his depraved passions. Matthew Henry beautifully explains it like this. He says that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Adam lost a rib and without any decrease to his strength or comeliness, but in lieu thereof, he had a helpmeet for him, which abundantly made up his loss. But I thought that was just kind of a sweet description how he described that that we're equal, but yet we're cared for and protected and loved by our husbands as well. And do they do it perfectly? No. Do they do it sometimes when they should? No. But that's okay. This is why we exercise forgiveness. This is why we live out the fruit of the Spirit toward them. So then C, Adam and Eve were created to work perfectly together. Without sin in the world, Adam and Eve loved one another perfectly, and they joyfully lived out their roles perfectly. So consider what that means. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 13. You know, we had to go there if we're going to talk about love and perfect and all that. So what does 
1 Corinthians 13 tell us? So I want you to be thinking through as I'm reading this, how we live out this, we ought to live this out perfectly toward our husbands and they ought to live it out perfectly toward us. Because remember when Adam and Eve were created in the garden, initially there was no sin. And so they loved one another and cared for one another perfectly. We will never have the privilege of understanding what that looks like, but they did. So 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own and is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So notice how many of those characteristics that I read out of those few verses are described by what love doesn't do. So all those things that we're told not to do, Adam and Eve never had any comprehension of that in the beginning when they were first created because there was no sin. But there are actually a total of eight attributes that explain the sinful things that love doesn't do. So I'll read those to you. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. And it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. I was kind of surprised as I started like really thinking through that, how many of those things are things we are told not to do if we are loving. All those things I just mentioned to you just now should not be a part of who we are and how we interact with our husbands ever. But because we're sinful, of course, we know we wrestle against those things. So before the fall, Adam would have loved Eve perfectly. So just kind of listen to this a little bit and kind of get your mind into this. He would have sacrificed for her in whatever way was necessary for her best interests. He would have worked diligently to serve her and care for her needs. He would have sought to understand her, being sensitive to her thoughts, needs, and desires. He would owe oh, everything he did for her, everything he did for her everything he did for her and to her would have always been for her very best. He would have led her well and protected her in whatever way was necessary. He would never be selfish, seeking his own desires first. He would never neglect her needs for his own laziness or selfishness. He would never be harsh or dominating in his leadership. He would never be passive, ignoring his responsibility of leadership in the marriage. He would never be unkind, impatient, easily angered, unforgiving, or selfish. And of course, we love to hear this description, right? Man, I wish my husband was like that. A perfect man that loves entirely and always has our best interest in mind. Yes, please, I'll take him. But we have to flip it because... Yeah, we like the idea of that kind of a husband, a husband that's perfect, but we have to also look at our own lives and our own hearts and imagine, okay, so where is it that I'm falling short of being the wife that I'm supposed to be? 
So let's consider Eve's response to Adam. She likewise would have loved Adam perfectly. She would have delighted in serving him and helping him in whatever ways were best for him. She would always be looking for practical ways to come alongside him and lighten his load. She would have been content in his leadership, never seeking to usurp it, delighted that she could help him lead to the, best, the very best of his ability. She would joyfully submit to his decisions. This is where it starts to get uncomfortable, right? Never complaining, never anxious, never jealous of his position and authority, always trusting his judgment. She would never resent him, criticize him, disrespect him, or act unbecomingly toward him. She would always love him with perfect patience, kindness, humility, and complete selflessness, always endeavoring to do what is best for him. Oh, that's a pretty steep order, is it not? Thinking through the ways that we should love our husbands and this role that God has given us enables us to do that. It, the scripture instructs us on how to do that. It is always delightful to hear how perfectly our husbands should love us, but it is usually a little bit more difficult for us to hear how we should perfectly love them. Often our first, our first thoughts are, well, if he was a better leader, I would be a better follower. If he was more trustworthy, then I would not be anxious about his leadership. If he had a more biblical plan, I would be more willing to help. You get the little head shake there and attitude behind it? Our list could go on and on. We tend to live with this attitude. If he does dot, 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 then I would do dot, dot, dot. If he would do so-and-so, then I would do such-and-such. Such. Often our desire to obey God's word, as well as our actual obedience to scripture, are based on our husband's performance. If he would live his role better, then I could live my role better. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever thought that before? <laughs> I think we all have wrestled with that in one way or another. It is absolutely essential that we understand that a wife's ability to function rightly and biblically in her marriage is not determined by her husband's attitude or actions, ever. Our ability to live in a manner that pleases the Lord in obedience to scripture is never, ever determined upon our husband's obedience to scripture and his ability to perfectly perfectly live out his role. Second Peter 1.3 says, seeing that his divine, his God, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to, that means leading to or belonging to, life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So maybe it's a little bit easier to understand that if I make it a little bit more simple. So basically, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the true knowledge of him in scripture. We have everything we need 
to enable us to live out the role that God has given us in a manner, of course, that what? We talked about this earlier on, that brings glory to God. That's why we live out the role that God has given us, because he has designed it. And as we live that out, he is honored and glorified in our lives. So this is why we have to connect those things together, because when I fail to live out that role and when I rebel against the role that God has given me, then I am not seeking to give God honor and glory. Our ability to live as godly wives who please the Lord is not ever determined by what our husband does or doesn't do. We have everything we need from Scripture to know how to be a godly wife, and Ephesians 3.16 informs us that we are strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. The Holy Spirit strengthens us so that we are capable of doing what feels impossible, especially when we're wrestling in our marriage, especially when we're struggling or our husband is sinning or he's not living out his role in the way that we think. And a lot of times we have to be really careful because sometimes in our arrogance, we accuse our husbands of not doing what they should be doing when they actually are. But because we are proud and rebellious, then we kind of turn it and we can twist it in our own minds to make us appear right in our own minds and make our husbands wrong in our own estimation. And we have to be really guarded that we don't do that. To believe that we must wait for our husbands to do what they're supposed to do before we can do what we're supposed to do is a horrible fallacy. Sometimes we don't even realize we think this way. And then sadly, at other times, we actually use it as an excuse as to why we shouldn't have to do what Scripture instructs us to do. Ultimately, a wife's ability to function biblically in her marriage is based on the Scripture. What does scripture instruct a woman to do? What should she prioritize? How should she live? This is what scripture gives us. It tells us exactly what we should do. And then the Holy Spirit enables us to be able to do that. So it is important to acknowledge if a husband doesn't live out his biblical role, it can cause all kinds of struggles and difficulties. So I just feel like that's important to mention that. I want to acknowledge that if our husbands fail to live out their roles the way they should, this does make life very challenging for us at times. And that's a very real issue. Sometimes it's necessary for a wife to get counsel or even talk to the elders so she can know how best to respond to her husband who is disobedient to scripture. Because sometimes when we live in a situation where it's, we're so close to it, it can be really hard to decipher our own desires, our own emotions. Well, our emotions are so strung up at times that that makes it hard for us to be able to think clearly. And if you face times like that, find either a friend or a counselor. If it's very serious, talk to one of the elders because they can help you work that through to think rightly and help you see, okay, well, here's where you are actually failing, but here's how you should be responding. And that doesn't necessarily change what's going on with your husband, but it helps you to be able to respond rightly if there are difficulties. So I just want to mention that because I think it's important. 
Even when a husband is sinful, God provides means for wives to still respond without being sinful. Oftentimes, we are frustrated by this acknowledgement, but it should actually be a comfort to us. Because no matter how sinful or dysfunctional a husband is, a wife is never restricted in her ability to be holy because she has God's Word and the Holy Spirit. No matter what our husband or anybody else does to us, they can never keep us from being obedient to Scripture. And that should actually give us a lot of hope and a lot of comfort. So anyways, we're going to keep moving on. In the same way that husbands make it very difficult for their wives when they fail to live out their biblical role, we need to keep in mind that when we fail to live out our biblical role as wives, it makes it difficult for our husbands. So we have this kind of uncanny way of looking at our husbands and recognizing when they don't live out their role, but forgetting that we need to really be looking and evaluating our own hearts. Am I living out the role that God has given me? So perhaps the following conversation best expresses how our husbands feel when we neglect to live out our role. So while attending a wedding for the first time, a little girl whispered to her mother, why is the bride wearing white? Her mother said, because white is the color of happiness. And today is the happiest day of her life. The little girl thought about this for a minute, then asked, why is the groom wearing black? Okay, that's funny. But I do think we need to evaluate that. We certainly don't want to give our husbands reason to wish they were wearing black. So before we consider the duties that we have within the role that God has given us, we need to hear what Scripture has to say regarding the blessing of a godly wife. So there are several passages in Scripture, verses in Scripture, that talk about the blessing of a godly wife. And what a delight. So think about it from a man's perspective for just a second. When we're reading through these things, and he's looking for a wife or has a wife, and the joy and delight a godly wife can be to him, and we have the ability to be that delightful person for him, but only as we first seek God's glory and we know and understand the word and we, we live out through the power of the spirit the truths of scripture. And then we can be these things that are delightful blessing to our husbands. So Roman numeral two, a godly wife is a blessing to her husband. So consider the ways scripture describes a wife who is a blessing. So A under that is a wife is a good thing. So Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. When your husband found you to be his wife, did he find a good thing? Would he say that? that you are a good thing in his life, that you are a blessing. B, a wise wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 19, 14. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So a sensible 
wife or a cautious wife, a wise wife is from the Lord. So do we demonstrate in our lives wisdom? Do we demonstrate prudence so that we are something that our husbands would say is a good thing in his life? So see, an excellent wife is a crown to her husband. Proverbs 12, 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. So Matthew Henry said this about the crown. He that is blessed with a good wife is as happy as if he were upon the throne. She is a crown to him, not only as a credit and honor to him, as a crown is as an adornment, but she supports and keeps up his authority in his family as a crown is an ensign of power. She is submissive and faithful to him and by her example teaches his children and servants to be so also. Very interesting thought there that, that he presents this idea of the crown. It is a wonderful thing. It is an honor and beauty to him, but yet there's a responsibility that comes along with that as well. So D, a value of a godly wife is far above the value of jewels. Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10 through 12, and then reading verse 23 says this, an excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. There's a lot in this that we don't have time to get into tonight, but a couple of things. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Does your husband trust you? Can he trust you explicitly with his most precious things in his life? His children? What about his finances? Oh, finances can be a huge source of contention in a marriage. Can our husband trust us with these things? It says he will have no lack of gain because of this woman who is excellent in his life. She does him good and not evil. Sometimes when he is good and kind to her, when he does everything perfectly, when he leads perfectly, no, he does her good all, she does him good all the days of her life. So on the good days, on the bad days, on the hard days, she does him good. So E, a godly wife is a reward. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says this, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So when your husband thinks about you, when your husband talks about you, does he think about you as a reward? Are you a reward to him? Are you living in your marriage, striving to live out the role that God has given you to such a degree that 
he looks at your life as a reward to him. I feel like these things are very weighty when we really stop to consider what is being said here because there's a lot of things I think, I'm your reward? I'm sorry. <laughs> I need to be a better reward. <laughs> but thinking through some of those things is really helpful to us to make us really consider, how am I living? How am I considering what's important to him? And here's the thing. I will do none of those things that we just read from those verses if my desires are for myself. If I am focused on my desires, on getting what I want, on what is fair, and remember all those things that I read from 1 Corinthians. I cannot be jealous. I cannot be easily provoked. I cannot seek my own. All these things. If I am not living in a loving manner toward my husband, then all of those things I just read, I am a poor excuse for a reward and a crown and a good thing. My value is probably not feeling to him a whole lot like it's above jewels. So it's good for me to evaluate. Is my life one that reflects the heart of Jesus Christ? That I'm willing to lay down my desires for the sake of my husband? Because who are we to be following? We're to be following the example of Christ always in everything, in all our relationships, but most specifically with our husbands, to love them well and to not be selfish in our interactions or our desires with them. So all of that gets us to the role. And so Roman numeral three, the role of a wife. And I am actually going to talk uh, in the next two times that we meet. So once before we uh, meet for Thanksgiving, and then we're going to break after Thanksgiving until January, and then after that. So uh, A on your outline is love and respect. So one of the roles of a wife is to love and respect her husband. And we are actually going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. And then B, one of the roles that we have is to submit. And we are going to talk about that when we come back in January. So I kind of have gone back and forth on that because I'm like, oh, I don't want submit to be so far away from this semester and all the things we've been talking about. But I really feel that submit does come, submission does come after love and respect. Because if we do not love our husbands, we are going to really struggle to submit to them. And so I do think it's important that we talk about love and respect before we talk about submitting to them. However, when we think here, and that's why these are just on there because I want you to be familiar with them, but love and respect, this is what we should be doing for our husbands, loving them and respecting them. And we'll look at the scripture and all that later. But what is our husband supposed to do? He is also supposed to love his wife. And he's to live with her in an understanding way. So he has his own category of what he's supposed to be doing. Just like with B, we are to submit. We're to be that follower, remember? And he is to lead. So we both have our differing roles going on there. But tonight, we're just going to talk about two of them. And the first one is that we are to be keepers at home. So C is keep the home. So while the man is instructed to provide protection, both spiritually and physically, and he is to provide for the family, 
a woman is instructed to care for the details of managing the home. Although our society degrades the duties and commitment of the homemaker, God's word does not. The excellent wife in Proverbs 31 provides a phenomenal example of a woman who manages her home with diligence and wisdom. So on your outline at the top, I remembered this week, actually Sandy helped me remember, so I won't take credit because Sandy reminded me today and said, pick your Psalms for homework. But what I did is I actually uh, did pick one Psalm. I think it's 127. And then the other one is Proverbs 31. And even though I know we're going into Proverbs, I do feel like that goes well with what we're talking about here. And so it's verse 10 till the end of the chapter. So you can spend your time there. But this is important because the excellent wife lives out the role that God has given her and she lives it out well. And of course, which we always have to mention, don't be discouraged when you read it because you aren't doing all those things right now. Stages of life mean that we do some of those things at different times and some better than others at different times as well. But this is the goal. So Titus 2.5, as we think about being a worker at home, remember the older women are instructed to teach the younger women to be several things. And from Titus 2.5, one of the things is that she is to be a worker at home. And the very ending phrase of that verse, so I'm reading verse 5 here, I'll just read the whole thing. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So the word of God is not dishonored. So when we are not caring for our homes and being keepers of the home, workers at home, the word of God is dishonored. So this is really high stakes here. We need to consider the responsibility that God has given us so much so that if we do not live this out, God's word is dishonored. So Proverbs 31, 27 says this, which you will look at this next week. Speaking of the excellent wife, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So this is what she's doing. She's looking well to the ways of her home. And I realize I am preaching to the choir. I don't think this is something that we all struggle with probably on, for the most part here. But it's still, like I said earlier, it's important to be reminded of this. And when you're interacting with other people that don't understand this, can you explain it? Can you explain it from scripture? Why do you, do you understand your convictions from the word of God so that you can explain it to somebody else? This is really important. And also the reason why we go through this is because sometimes we can have a tendency to grow weary in doing good, right? And so we remind ourselves in scripture, what is it that God has called us to do? Why are we going to do that? It helps us so that we do not grow weary in well-doing. So before we look into the duties of the virtuous woman, I want to address one way our culture has opposed God's mandate for women to be workers at home. And again, I don't think I'm probably telling you anything new here, but John MacArthur says this, the independent working wife has become the primary symbol of woman's rebellion against God's order. That is pretty strong language, and of course we come to expect that from John MacArthur, right? 
The results on our nation's marriages and families have been absolutely devastating. These mothers, in effect, have abandoned the home. They have removed themselves from the oversight of their own husbands, and they are fighting for their independence in the workplace. In the process, many have literally abandoned home, children, and husband in every sense, opting for divorce when career and family conflicts become too much. So, having read that kind of very in-your-face quote, I want to carefully state that it is not necessarily sinful to have a job or to work. I do think it's important to say that. In fact, so personally, we have an Airbnb and I take care of that and I clean that and I actually have a couple of cleaning jobs that I do for a couple of other ladies. So I am in no way saying that women should not be working. That's not the point. MacArthur is referring to the woman whose heart, purpose, goals, energy, time, and desires are all centered and focused outside of the home. So that being said, if you do work, you must constantly be evaluating if your work is encroaching on the duties God has given you. If you are unable to fulfill your God-given duties well for the glory of God and the benefit of your family, then at that point you maybe need to assess whether you need to change some things. So God has ordained the responsibility of a wife and mother to center around the home. When a woman abandons her God-given post, she is no longer able to properly carry out her duties. A woman who is pursuing a career cannot mentally and physically be in two places at one time. Either the career will suffer or the home will suffer. And here's kind of the scary thing. Most often it is the home that suffers because a career presents the imminent danger of possible termination, right? You have a boss that could fire you if you don't do a good job. But the home declines gradually. We can actually be deceived into thinking we can do both things at one time, but we can't. This is why God has given us the role of being at home. Now, keep in mind, at different stages of life, these demands vary a little bit. If you are married and you don't have kids yet, then you have more freedom and time to work outside the home without it harming your responsibility to your husband. If you have five or six children at home, it probably would be really hard for you to work outside the home. And when all your kids move out, I've, I never worked the whole time I had kids because I was raising four kids. And now that I don't have kids at home, I can go spend time doing some of these other things a little bit. So that's going to vary according to your stage of life as well. In evaluating what it means to be a keeper of the home, we are going to look at some of the duties of the excellent wife from Proverbs 31. So performing these duties well requires a great deal of time, especially when you consider that most women are performing these duties in conjunction with raising children. So caring for a home, as we know, is no small task. It involves the organization and execution of a number of various responsibilities. So I'm going to kind of go through these a little bit quickly. So number one, we have meal preparation. 
Proverbs 31, 14 and 15 says, She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household. So she expended a lot of energy to feed her family and to feed them well. And we know that three meals a day takes a lot of time. We're constantly in the kitchen. I remember years ago feeling like when I considered all the meals in my future that I was looking down this eternal hallway of meals and food. But actually, it's a delight to feed our family as healthy as we're able to, to make it taste good. And this does not mean that we have to be the best cook. Because remember what I've said before. Okay, so Rachel and I work very closely together and she loves food and I love pretty things. So, you know, together we make a great team on the women's ministry and I like food that tastes good and so I can cook and I enjoy cooking to a degree. But if you're gonna give me the choice of like putting on a banquet and making the tables look beautiful and arranging all the flowers, I'm gonna choose that any day over the food. But we can all learn to cook and we can all learn to make healthy food that tastes good for our families. And this is a really big part. And here's just a little side note as well. So with your family, with your husband, with your children, food actually can be a wonderful way to build memories with your family, to have traditions with your family as well, things that your kids grow up being familiar with that are special forever. And we've done quite a few of those things. And honestly, I didn't realize what a big deal it was until my kids grew up. And then they're like, well, aren't we having this? Aren't we having that? I'm like, oh, yes, that's a good idea. I think we will. But those are special things that bring bonds with your kids and even with your husband. Like Craig has certain things that he loves to eat. Well, we haven't had that in a while. Are we going to have that? Or certain times of the year where you have certain things. So preparing meals can actually be a really sweet thing for our families. So number two. Clothing. Proverbs 31, 21 explains, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. So managing the home also includes properly clothing each member of the household. So again, we can observe that quality is important here. We see the wise management of planning ahead for future needs because she's looking ahead at winter coming and she's not concerned that her children don't have what they need because she's planned ahead to make sure. And remember in her day and age, it wasn't like she could just run to Target or the Goodwill or Costco or wherever it is that you go. She had to make these things. And so she was planning so far in advance that she was not concerned about the winter that was coming. And actually, so I've watched some of you young moms too, and you guys are such a blessing because... I see you guys sharing clothes and giving hand-me-downs and the thing that you just did here over the weekend where you can bring your clothes and other people benefit from that. That's a delightful thing. You guys are helping each other to do this well. So way to go. Keep doing it. So number three, she is enterprising. Another aspect of wise home management may include finding ways to turn a profit through the proper use of gifts and talents. So this was one of those things where I don't have a whole lot of gifts and talents that I can go make money with. It's not going to totally run my life. So 
I thought, well, what can I do? And that was actually, Craig and I talked through it for a couple of years, and that's where I ended up doing the Airbnb because that's something that I can do on a very part-time basis and yet still bring in a profit that's helpful and is beneficial over the long haul. But if you are able to do something like that, that's a wonderful way to bless your husband and strengthen the finances of the home. Things like music, hairstyling, tutoring, web design, bookkeeping, there's all kinds of different things depending on your stage of life that you could possibly do some of this. So then number four, service to others in the church and in the community. So Proverbs 31, 20 describes the excellent wife saying she extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hand to the needy. So this is part of being a keeper at home. And this is such a wonderful thing as well, because I see you guys doing this for one another all over the place, serving one another, taking meals to one another, helping each other, babysitting each other's kids. That's all included in this, being able to help those that have needs at times. <clears throat> and then number five, and I guess I should say actually about number four again, is that this is within the church. So we, when we are at home, we have more time to serve within the church. But then it also can go out to community things where we can actually have opportunity for evangelism as well. And this is actually, I guess, just kind of on a side note, but this has always been something that's been really important to Craig, that I would have time to serve and minister within the church. And so he never wanted me to work full-time or even so much that that took up the majority of my time because he wanted for me to be able to live out being a keeper of the home in a way that made it possible for me to minister within the church. And I think that's good for us to keep in mind. How are we prioritizing our time and our schedule? Again, stage of life plays into this a whole bunch, but keeping in mind, what am I prioritizing? How am I scheduling my time and energy in a way that I can serve and minister to others? So number five, <clears throat> actually, that shouldn't be number five. What does it say on D? Okay, I changed it on yours, but not on mine. So, that, so we're only talking about two things. So the first one all kept, fell under the category of being a keeper at home, and the last one here is to bear and nurture children. So when God created Adam and Eve, he commanded them in Genesis 1.28, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Without Eve, Adam could not fulfill God's command. Apart from the help of a woman, a man cannot produce children. So it was essential that he have a wife. Genesis 3.20 says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Because of her life-giving ability, Adam named his wife Eve, which means life or life-giver. Bearing and nurturing children is one of the most beautiful aspects of our role as women. One of the greatest benefits of working at home is that it allows a woman to be the primary caregiver to her children. By obeying God's instructor, instruction to be a worker at home, a mother has the wonderful privilege of nurturing and instructing the hearts of her children. 
Regardless of how highly a daycare program is recommended, it will never compare to the loving care of a mother. No teacher will ever have as much vested interest in a child as his or her mommy, nor will a teacher have the same faithful, preserving influence in a child's life. When we are willing to stay home, and there are sacrifices in that, to stay home, but the blessings are enormous. And this is one of the aspects of that role that God has given us. And remember that all that falls under the category of being a helper to our husbands. As we bear and nurture children, that is a huge benefit to our husbands. A godly Christian man is commanded in scripture to go to work to provide for his family. Well, what happens if he does not have a godly wife? Who is instructing these children in the Lord? Because the bulk of his time is taken up providing for his family. He needs a helper to instruct his children, to teach them the ways of the Lord. Our job is absolutely vital in this aspect. And I just, by side note, will say that, of course, we know that there are women that the Lord has not allowed to have children. And if that is the case, number one, those of us that have children need to be very sensitive. But the person that doesn't have children, that would like children, the Lord can give you other ways to minister and love children, whether it be children that you teach, nieces and nephews, grandchildren, whatever it is. I guess it wouldn't be grandchildren if you didn't have kids, right? So that didn't make any sense. But <laughs> it's getting late. Anyways, um, but there are ways that women can still minister to children even without having given birth to them. And, of course, adoption is always a great option as well. So I'm going to read one thing here as we conclude. And this is actually uh, a little paragraph from John MacArthur as well, because he says this, Satan knows by experience that when the home is weakened, all of society is weakened because the heart of all human relationships is the family. The curse hits humanity at its core of its most needed human relationship the need for men and women to help each other to live productive, meaningful, and happy lives. But the rebellion against the divine order has promoted serving and indulging self as the key to finding meaning and happiness in life. And I know I mentioned that earlier, but we need to keep that in mind, that when we pursue the selfish things that the world is constantly throwing in our faces, that is constantly promoting, we are going to absolutely fail to live out that role. And ultimately, we are not choosing to give glory and honor to God in that case. The biblical roles that God has designed eliminate self. They are entirely focused on others. As we endeavor to live out the role that God has given us as wives, it should be our desire to set self aside to love and serve our husbands with joy for the glory of God. Let's pray.